welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse in their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I am joined by Ben Chica. Ben, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Who are you? Um, well, that could be a lot of things, but I'll give the version that I think has led to uh, me being on the show today. So I am a PhD student at Claremont Graduate University in California, though I'm living in Boston right now because my wife got into her own PhD program. And I'm in philosophy of religion and theology, uh, which is the generic title. But what I actually do is uh, issues about the relation between science and religion. And I talk about religious pluralism as well, which is basically just people pushing for the acceptance of different religions rather than the competition between them. Um, so the interesting parts about um, what led me here is uh, in my master's program, I received some kind of training in science literacy so I could better understand what scientists are up to. And uh, I worked in an astronomy lab helping study a black hole a little bit, but I was mostly doing just uh, meaningless little uh, intern lab work, paperwork and stuff. But in my PhD program, I started working in the neuroscience lab on the Claremont Graduate University campus. And uh, they've been doing some interesting work that I thought was relevant to um, some of the nonsense going on in the video game industry lately. And at the same time, I'd been thinking about, um, there's kind of a crisis in academia right now. A lot of faculty are frustrated with the fact that there's a lack of jobs, so they're giving students useless degrees that they can't get hired with. And they're also speaking at conferences where the only people who attend are other faculty members and the actual world never gets impacted. So I'd been thinking about how I could reach a more popular audience for a while. And I, there's a there's a uh, website called Pathios, which is about religion. It's kind of popular. I wrote for them for a little bit. Um, but then as I was thinking about how I could do something similar with games and engage my with what little free ha time I have, my favorite hobby of video games with my academic work, and then when Gamergate happened, PAX East was approaching, and then there were continued death threats. I guess a uh, uh, light just went off in my head, and I made a connection between some of the neuroscience I was studying, uh, the philosophy I was working with, and all that was going on. And I pitched a panel to PAX East because I know how to submit panel ideas to conferences, and they accepted. And then I had a games panel at PAX East, and now I've technically done something in the gaming industry. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's what I study, and that's how I ended up uh, talking uh, to you. I think. So, the panel you submitted and presented at PAX East was about online bullying, the science of online bullying, right? Correct. So it involved a bunch of sciencey things, um, like um, oxytocin and 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 neurotransmitters and and brain things, obviously, because of the, the neuroscience um, research background. Um, can you, I know it's hard without visual aids, but can you talk about, um, a, about all of that, um, for a minute and, and give the audience an idea of, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the panel, but just like a, an overview of like, from a neurochemical perspective, what's going on um, with all of this stuff? Yeah, um, I'll start with a, I'll start with a quick kind of rundown of the scientific story as I see it, and then maybe uh, ask me to clarify or elaborate on uh, a few things that you find interesting. Okay. So the basic picture that I wanted to paint, or think I painted at the panel, was. Uh, I told it through oxytocin, and there's other, obviously other things going on in the body, but oxytocin is a chemical that is released in the brain during interpersonal interactions. So it became popularized initially uh, in studies of breastfeeding mothers and babies. They both get really big spikes in it, so people thought it was responsible for maternal instincts and just uh, the instinct to nurture young. But the lab that I worked at in California uh, has been known for studying it and realizing that it's responsible for so much more in our social interactions. And it's it's basically the chemical that helps us pick up on social cues and resp respond appropriately to other people and generally just make us be nicer and more trustworthy uh, towards others. So the without uh, – we, we can get into more later, but the basic is – 
if somebody signals, gives you a sign of trust, so they uh, put something in your care, and then uh, you get a spike in oxytocin, and then as a uh, as a response to that, you're going to be more trustworthy towards them. Now, in the lab, this involves exchanging money, but basically, if you're nice to somebody and kind to them and tr you trust them and believe them, they're going to act the same way to you. And uh, there was also a recent study the lab did that found um, these rises in oxytocin levels are exactly the same um, when people use Twitter and Facebook, which was a big uh, aha moment for me in terms of relating the science to uh, the Gamergate stuff and all the online harassment, which is... It's common sense that you shouldn't threaten people online, but if people brush that off as, oh, that's just... It's the internet. Uh, it doesn't matter. It really does matter to your brain because we know it's the internet, but as far as our brain is concerned, it's a, just a re release of a chemical, and we get the same increase uh, when we use Twitter and Facebook that we do when we actually shake someone's hand or give them a hug. So we have the feel-good hormones, basically, some of them anyway, involved in this process, and so it doesn't matter whether you're um, harassing somebody or giving somebody praise, you get validation through, you know, likes and favorites and retweets and, and, and responses, um, to the things you're saying, even if it's, you know, threatening someone's life. Is that, is that kind of it in a nutshell? Yes. And so the, the other side of the story are the chemicals that inhibit the release of oxytocin. So primarily testosterone in, in the in experiments that I'm familiar with, uh, it's dihydrotestosterone, which all you need to know is um, signs of trust increase oxytocin. But if you show signs of distrust and distance yourself from someone and act with hostility because you don't trust them, then both parties get increases in dihydrotestosterone, which inhibits the release of oxytocin and tends to create more hostile situations and confrontations, and people kind of segregate themselves from one another and stay in that hostile mood. So, um, but but it's just as, it's just as real online. So, yes, the takeaway is that online interactions to your brain are just as real, positive or negative. Hmm. I'm just I'm thinking about that because I, I guess it makes sense to me from like a personal experience standpoint from, you know, the friendships I've made online and, um, you know, the, the people I've talked to and even some of the um, the disagreements I've had, like um, like I've not been able to sleep because of disagreements I've had with people mm -hmm. I've never met. Um well, and uh, the story gets more complicated at that point, at least to me, because um, oxytocin is known as the, like, um, the cuddle chemical, the moral molecule, the love chemical. Um, I, I mentioned this briefly at the panel, but I don't know if you've ever seen people trying to sell uh, online oxytocin spray bottles. So like walk into a room before uh, a conference or something and spray it in the room and people are going to love you. Uh, it's complete garbage and nonsense. It doesn't work, but like it has that perception. But it looks like in large enough groups, um, it can actually build walls between people. So this kind of dark side of it where um, its release is inhibited and people kind of go off in their own groups and just cluster together. Uh, one, it's happening because of real physical responses by the body, but then you have people that are segregated don't want to talk to each other and are very uh, in a state of great disagreement with one another. And that looks like the state of Gamergate right now and treating female game developers and game critics. Um, so then th the story is oxytocin is good, but something potentially bad can happen with the way it interacts with our bodies. We get these isolated groups that won't uh, engage because the that's the way that their uh, groups have developed. Um, so diversity matters. And the second half of the talk was bringing in philosophy of diversity and why breaking down the barriers of those groups matters and how we can go about that. Uh, so that's the scientific story or the scientifically informed humanities story. So how do we go about breaking down these barriers? I think that people who listen to the show are on board with like these barriers do need to be you know, 
broken, but how do we go about it? I mean, that's where I, I know it needs to be done. I don't know how you do it necessarily. I mean, I think, I think that's probably the situation a lot of, uh, people listening to this show are in i think some of your previous guests have said as much i mean we need diversity but how do we what are the best strategies that's obviously the hard part or else we would have done it by now maybe right in one sense the the segregated groups make sense so i do you know about in-group out outgroup problems and evolution and how evolutionists uh, evolutionary theorists talk about them um i have a vague idea but why don't you fill fill us all in so i mean this makes sense uh, if you read any popular biologists like Dawkins talking about the evolution of the species they like to bring this up a lot uh, at some point in our evolutionary history uh, it was easier to su- survive with other people so we, we formed groups and the bigger the group was and the more trustworthy they were of each other uh, the better they could cooperate to survive and it made sense in a certain uh, way to be distrusting of people outside the group because you don't you weren't sure if they were going to buy into everything or be a cooperating member they might try and infiltrate and do some harm so a lot of human behavior they describe in terms of in-group out-group problems so they naturally exist because we're trying to survive in a harsh world and people in the out-group are suspicious until uh, you can accept them as part of the in-group and breaking down the barriers is really as simple as taking the plunge so i mean in so that that's the evolutionary story like we're not uh we're not neanderthals anymore we're not as threatened by the natural environment or you know uh, predatory animals um but we are still threatened by like anonymity and fear online and in terms of getting back to the nice increase in oxytocin as opposed to the dihydrotestosterone it's it's really taking the plunge and speaking to somebody different than you and asking them a question or trying to figure out what they're really about rather than rather than hating them just to hate them like actually before you do that ask them what they actually represent and then you might find out that uh, there was nothing to hate all along you just kind of went down this uh biological track of uh they weren't in your group you felt threatened you got mad but there was never really a reason the group just kind of developed so it's i think it's taking the plunge and just forcing diversity upon yourself and trying to talk to different people and ask questions and ask what they're into and ask why they have the concerns they do. And then when you do that, I think your body will respond with more oxytocin, which naturally makes us more trusting and nice and kind. Um, but I don't know what the best ways to do that are, but I think it's is that's what needs to be done. I think this is where different people's approaches comes in. You know, we have um, we'll just say women just because it, it's easy for me right now. Like we have women from with with different kinds of communication styles um, and different messages, you know, communicating. And hopefully, you know, we catch a lot of people in the cross section. So like I'm thinking we have, you know, Brianna Wu and she tends to be like no holds, bar- no holds barred. Um, you know, this is what's happening. This is what you need to do to change. We have people like Randy Harper um, creating GG Autoblocker to kind of help Twitter be a safer place for people. And I think that that's bringing awareness, whether it's I mean, we have people who are threatening to sue her because they were on the the block list because they were involved with Gamergate or hate speech or whatever. But, you know, so so that's a form of communication. We have um, shows like Mine, um, Unconsolable, uh, Justice Points, Spawn on Me, you know, people who are in these geeky kind of gaming spaces talking about diversity. Um, and so hopefully, like this combined approach, we can start chipping away at at people. Um, it's the best thing I've been able to come up with. Yeah. And, you know, I know, I know, uh, Brianna Wu gets a lot of flack for kind of being, some people see her as being in your face with how she feels about everything. But I think that's, uh, it's one fantastic approach. It doesn't have to be everybody's, Mm -hmm. but, um, I was so lucky that, um, as I was planning the panel, uh, this American life had an episode about bullying and I play some clips from it in the panel, but it was amazing because um, this writer for Jezebel.com, Lindy West, 
um, was in the midst of receiving all sorts of uh, rape threats online, and she actually wrote an article just blasting the people threatening her and saying, this is how I feel, I'm angry, upset, I don't want to take it anymore. And she was very, it was very uh, intentionally inflammatory writing, kind of in your face, letting you know how awful this was for her. And the this one, this one troll that had been impersonating her dead father online and ins insulting her via a fake account of her dead dad who had just recently died, mm. and it was just an awful experience. But that guy emailed her, deleted the account, and they had an amazing phone call. And he apologized, and they they cried together, and she had some solace, and she's like they they came to an amazing place. Like it was the perfect story as I was thinking about how this can happen. And it, it happened in the midst of planning the panel. And after the panel, uh, somebody asked, this seems to go against the common knowledge of don't feed the trolls. Mm -hmm. Because what happened in this case was like, she d directly attacked the troll and said, I'm not taking this. Uh, I'm going to stand up for myself in the face of it. And that got through to him. And I think there's something to that. Um, a little bit of what the second half of the panel was about, which was basically uh, the science set up why philosophy or why diversity matters and why it's an issue. And then the second half was actually about philosophy of diversity. Um, when somebody's only known to you as the other, so when it's just uh, generic women making games, but none of the Gamergate people know what they actually do, like what their job is, what they're interested in, uh, what what they want to do differently in games. They just know them as something different that's not me, and that's all they need to perceive a threat. Um, saying the problems that they're facing and like in very real terms and how how people are being hurt is one way to get through because it breaks through the othering and actually says, I'm a human being here. This is what's happening to me, and these are my concerns. And it uh, it can be one way to become a human being instead of a anonymous other that can be kind of toyed with on the internet because you're not understood as an actual person yet. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's it's interesting that Brianna Wu gets flack for that style, but I think it's it's good to let people know just how bad it is because uh, it is a problem and there should be. Uh, lessons learned about it and uh, acting like it's not a problem won't get that lesson learned. Yeah. Well, and you know, something that I think people have rightly pointed out is if Brianna were a man with the approach that she has, you know, would she be perceived as being aggressive or would she just be calling people on their BS? Right. Um, right. And, and I think that's an interesting thought too. I actually have a story. Um, that that was uh, triggered as I was watching the panel last night because you were talking about um, about this the story of online bullying and someone calling out their bully. Um, I I actually had something happen not online but in real life to me um, flying two packs east from Phoenix, and um, it's interesting. So I was flying. Um, I was on the plane and I am overweight and um, I noticed before we took off that the person sitting next to me took a picture of me um, like and she actually put her phone like almost in my lap and took a picture of me from like my lap up. So it was like my chin and, you know, a little bit of my face and she texted it to somebody and um, they responded. Um, they responded and said, gross. And I sat through a four hour flight knowing that this woman had taken a picture of me and, and sent it to somebody and I didn't step on her foot and I didn't punch her in the face and I didn't accidentally spill my drink on her like I wanted to. <laughs> um, but when we landed, I looked at her and I told her, I was like, what you did is disgusting. And she didn't, I was, I was super impressed because she didn't try to deny it. Um, she immediately apologized and she was like, I am so sorry. And I said, you know, I understand what it's like. You're walking down the aisle and you see that you're going to have to sit next to a fat person. Like, I get it. Nobody wants to do that. But what you did is totally and completely unacceptable. You know, absolutely nothing about me and nothing about what I do. And um, 
and I was shaking and I was crying because my, my anger response is crying and not like yelling. Um, but that could have gone like at least two ways, the way it went, which is, I think the way it should have gone, you know, Mm -hmm. apologizing, whatever, but she could have doubled down and been really defensive too. And I think that's something I myself fear, um, when calling out people is that like, they're just going to be from my perspective, from my perspective, bullheaded and double down. Um, and I guess it's just something that we've got to learn how to deal with when people do that. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think there, there's no one strategy for everybody, but I was, I was interested by the question or the the comment that the, the, content of the panel seemed to lead to the conclusion that rather than don't feed the trolls, you should actually directly feed the trolls, so to speak. Cause I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that while planning the panel, but it, it does seem to follow a little bit because part of the scientific story, the way I see it is that this can happen unconsciously basically. And part of the solution with diversity is to, make the issue conscious and then do something about it. So it can be, these groups can form perfectly naturally. So someone's different than you, you don't understand them, but you have an automatic, uh, just because they're different or they're doing something that you don't understand. Uh, if the initial interaction doesn't go well, for whatever reason, uh, you kind of fall back into your group. Other people do the same. And now you have a cluster of people grouping together and they have their own little isolated group. But that can happen without really knowing the content of the debate or, you know, that there is a debate. Just for whatever reason, you kind of isolated yourselves. But it's not natural in the sense that your height or your eye color is natural. Like, you don't, it's it's not just, it it is what it is. In this case, something happened unconsciously, but uh, because we have lovely evolved brains, we can take a step back, look at it, realize what happened, and then... uh, learn modified behavior, which is why injecting the talk about diversity matters. And it's uncomfortable for both sides because it takes courage to call out a bully because you're taking a risk. You don't know how they're going to respond. Um, But it also snaps them out of their comfort zone because if, if they were just doing this unconsciously and automatically, maybe it snaps them out of it. And they say, you know what, that was not that was not good behavior on my part. And I, I realized that now and I just kind of did it automatically and that can be a learning moment. Um, and I see that, I'll, um, Randy Harper and Brianna, we both, um, have been known to retweet or respond to people who have emailed them and said, you know, I was, um, I was a harasser and, um, I don't know what happened, but I see now that that was wrong. And I've seen both of them say, Hey, you know, okay, like what you did wasn't okay, but I'm glad you're here now. Um, and yeah, I guess I just keep coming back to, we just keep chipping away. We just, you know, we just, everybody does what they're doing and hopefully we, we make this mountain of harassment, you know, make it less acceptable, remove validation. Um, so they're, the oxytocin stops flowing as frequently and um and just keep going yeah i'm well and part of the problem um i think this is a different angle we haven't quite talked about yet so uh, oxytocin and uh, testosterone and other chemicals that inhibits inhibit its release um they're not um how do i want to say this they're not uh they're not treated equally online, maybe. So a, a problem with online interactions is if they go bad, um, your testosterone can go up really fast and that can inhibit oxytocin release. But fixing that isn't as easy because um, oxytocin is released at uh, higher numbers in face-to-face interactions. And if... Um, So I I said previously that it's released in the same amount online, and it is. But if the online interaction has gone poorly, that uh, increase in dihydrotestosterone is going to prevent kind of oxytocin from fixing the situation. And because so many internet 
uh, interactions are kept anonymous, or even on Twitter, um, you don't actually see the person's face. Uh, that distancing that the testosterone creates where uh, you're prevented from making the kind of personal interaction of trust and cooperation that oxytocin can give, uh, the distance created there, it's hard to overcome. And that's why, I mean, I don't know how we fix it on Twitter and Facebook, but like seeing someone's face really matters still. Like get, getting their actual reaction matters still. Um, we, have, we have mirror neurons that um, respond to emotional pain and joy in another person, but when we actually see their face. So those things aren't triggered by a tweet or a Facebook post. Those actually come from seeing that an actual human being is involved. Um, and I don't, that's a, that's a fact. I don't have a good suggestion. <laughs> that's a, I don't have a good suggestion for it, but, uh, that's a, that's a harder part of the problem to solve. Yeah. So in the, in the panel, you guys described mirror neurons as, um, you didn't describe it. The The illustration that was given is like you watch America's Funniest Home Videos or you watch YouTube videos of people like in quote unquote funny accidents. And you have like this visceral like you cringe, you know, you see um, you see the baseball bat going towards someone's sensitive areas and you're like, oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. Yes. We use the very relevant example of America's Funniest Home <laughs> Videos. That's correct. That's And that's pretty much how I watch it, like with with hands over my eyes peeking through occasionally um so it's not like we can take a video every time someone hurts our feelings or or whatever to to like see my pain um but i think you know you know the challenge with online interactions is that there's it's so easy to ignore you know you can you can someone can write a response to something you've said well you can not read it you know, you cannot watch the video. You cannot, you, you can block them on Twitter. Um, it's harder to do that in real life, you know, like you can walk away, but that's only so effective. Yeah, that's, uh, you picked up uh, on one of the main points of, uh, we, we talked about Emmanuel Levinas, who talked about the other, he's, he's known as kind of starting that trend in philosophy. Um, when you're face to face with another, it, has certain calls upon you to just respect it as a living being uh, who wants to continue living and that has basic that calls on us to uh, show basic respect to other people we encounter um, that same kind of uh, basic interaction isn't the default stance online so um, my one of my favorite examples along these lines is the way Richard Dawkins debates religious people so when he is tweeting or writing books, he just eviscerates everything religious. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've covered debates that he's had in person and he's much more kind. And he's, and uh, the theologian will say, you know, a lot of theologians, myself included, dislike the same models of God and the same theological claims that he hates. So the theologian will say, well, I actually agree with you on these points. And that, that's a bad model of God that I don't believe in either. And I think this is bad religion too. And he'll say, oh, well, well, but this, you don't, the most, a lot of religious people still believe it. So it's still an issue or, uh, if you get into a deeper philosophical point, he'll even say, oh, well, I'm not a professional prof professional philosopher. I can't speak to that, but I think the science leads me here. He's much more conciliatory and kind of backs off his claims when there's another person there saying, hey, I think you have some points, but I have some points too, and these this is my perspective. And I, I find it interesting that every, every time I've seen him speak in person, he takes a different stance than when he's writing on Twitter or in his books. That is interesting. Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins is uh, inflammatory and uh, I don't he's not my favorite um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But um, and, and kind of one of them is that uh, hard and fast stance he seems to take like he and maybe it's because he feels like science supports everything he says, but he's. I have never seen him really budge on an issue like on Twitter um, with the few interactions I've seen, but that's interesting. And it's, it's interesting to me that he can, I don't, 
get away with it isn't exactly what I'm, (laughs) isn't the phrase that I'm looking for, but like he doesn't change that about himself. It's, and even, even in person, he doesn't necessarily change his final conclusions, but, but I think it's significant if we're think if this is a analogy to all the Gamergate stuff, it's interesting that just physically being there with somebody, hearing their point of view and seeing their face and how passionately they care about something really changes his tone and leads him to concede some points. Like, I'm not a professional philosopher. Like, you might have a point there. Now, I'm still not changing my final conclusion, but I'm not. I'm also not being a violent, angry, yelling uh, monster right now. Um, that, that's not a... That's a not... That's not an insignificant thing. Right. So Twitter and Facebook, I don't know how that solution would come about because they're not, I mean, some Twitter accounts are anonymous, but Facebook's not anonymous and people are still awful to each other on there in the comments. But something my colleague and I on the panel were interested in is, I mean, we ended talking about video games because I think the the interactive aspect of them has a real chance to make headway on this problem online. Um, we were, tr- we were, we had various examples we were thinking of uh, during the panel, but I mean, um, gay rights is still a big issue in a lot of churches. Uh, a lot are coming around, but there is still some that are you know, not accepting at all. And we had the idea that um, gone home should be taught in ethics classes and uh, schools of theology that t- make it part of the class, have people play through the game because now granted I was already on board as a ally and wanting uh, LGBTQ rights. But when I played through that game and uh, I don't know how spoilery um, you can, you can spoil it. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't played it yet, but um, I have it. I just haven't played it yet, but yeah, we'll just spoilers for gone home <laughs> um, near the end when you're when you're when the game has kind of led you to believe that something bad may have happened to your sister, uh, but you found out that she's safe and she's also with uh, her love, who's another uh, girl at school. I stood up at my desk alone in my house and said, yes, <laughs> I and I think now you never see another human face, but playing as one sister coming to realize that it's the game is basically coming to realize that among amongst other family dynamics, you come to realize that um, your sister is a lesbian and she has met somebody at school that is also interested in her. And you kind of uh, figure out how that tale unwinds. And then I, you, I got emotionally involved in it. And when I, when I found out that one, she was safe and two, had like a happy ending and was discovering herself and it was going well for her. I like, I cheered like I was at some real life sporting event and my team had just won or something. And I was alone in my house. And I, that's amazing. Um, I had, I had a similar reaction to, uh, brothers, a tale of two sons. Mm-hmm. I don't, do you know about much about that game? It's another one that I haven't, haven't been able to play yet, but talk about it. There's a point at the game, so you, it's, you're, you're playing as two brothers, and you control, basically the, you play with the controller, and half of the controller controls one brother, and half of the controller controls the other brother, and at one point, uh, I think the older brother is taken away from you, and all of a sudden, you, you're controlling one brother, but all the control mechanics that you had with the other brother are still needed to get you through the game. So even though the other brother is gone, like without him, you wouldn't be able to survive through the rest of the game and make it through. And I thought it was a really touching way of getting at real life dynamics of growing up and learning life skills and uh, friendship, uh, you know, family friendships uh, driving it home in, in only the way a game could with a clever control scheme. And similarly with Gone Home, putting you in the... Sh- so you don't see faces, like it's not triggering mirror neurons and stuff, but the, forcing you to interact with somebody's story. So if you play through the whole game, 
you have to interact with this growing up tale of your sister. And if you, you know, somebody could stop playing and say, this is, uh, you know, this liberal garbage isn't for me. But if you get, if you get through the whole thing, I think you, even if you were not a supporter of gay rights, you would at least have a lot more sympathy afterward because it told a really human story and the game made you interact with it and gradually find out about it and get like a human perspective on it rather than just a meta narrative kind of uh political battle about uh certain laws and states and stuff Mm -hmm. so so i um i'm excited about the potential that games have to play in solving this history because of their interactive nature um, I know you've talked about the panel before, but there was at PAX East, there was a panel on uh, empathy in game design, all the mm. feels or something like that. Yep. I'm excited about what those people are up to because games do have a, they have an excellent role to play in that. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I was just emailing with Ken Gagney. He's the person who put that panel together this morning, asking him when it was going to be online so I could start sharing it with everybody because it was it was great. And I walked out of the panel really excited about a lot of these games. Um, Ninja Pizza Girl um, kind of turned into it didn't start out as a game about bullying, but it turned into a game about bullying and kind of empowering, you know, this this girl is empowered to be herself um in the game uh uh always sometimes monsters you know your 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 love is getting married and you know you've got decisions to make her about that um this war of mine is you know like a survivalist you know you're you're in you're, you're a victim of war and how do you live you know you you weren't a soldier you just were caught in the destruction and um you know our i think our humanity is largely dependent on upon stories and telling stories and i think that's why video games are so powerful is because it's more than just words on a page or you know something you're watching on a screen it's it's you're doing you know you're you're in the protagonist's shoes most of the time being that person and living their life. And, um, and there's, there's great power in that. Yeah. And I don't, from my perspective, even if, so let's say as a thought experiment, um, a bunch of, a bunch of Gamergate supporters that dislike female game developers and dislike women in the industry, you know, don't like, uh, Anita Sarkeesian's criticisms. Um, let's say they play. Uh, well, let's, they play Gone Home and uh, Bro- uh, Brothers in my example, or uh, maybe they play Depression Quest from Zoe Quinn. I would like to think there's a way, and this would be a okay uh, resolution in my mind. Let's say they play the games. They don't they still don't like them necessarily it's you know you know not everybody has to like every type of game in the world i i hate uh mobas i just Mm -hmm. i can't (laughs) i can't stand playing them um but i think if there were just an appreciation like oh like that was a i can understand how this would be a touching story and why people want to make these games i have no interest in playing this game again and i like if i may not i probably wouldn't play a similar game in the future but I understand it now and mm-hmm. I understand why different people making different games matters. Like this resonates with somebody else and not for me. So I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to follow this developer, but I somehow understand what they're doing now and I still don't like it, but that would be okay with mm-hmm. me. I, you know, honestly, I, yeah, live and let live. I, in a lot of ways, I think that that's the ideal resolution you know you just you stay in your corner and I'll stay in mine and we don't have to interact at all like it's okay and you know we'll just agree to disagree and live our lives okay I mean sometimes that's what you have to do yeah well and so in this in this hypothetical scenario it's not it's not completely dis, uh, agreeing to disagree because in this case, it would be, um, I no longer disagree, but I still, I still agree that it's not for me, but I don't disagree with its like very existence anymore, mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, and that that's a big difference because then that's true. You, that, you know, if its existence is fine now, you're not as compelled to threaten the people making it exist. Yeah, I just yeah. It's just it still baffles me that this is a conversation we're having because, you know, it's just. People are interested in different things and they like different things. And because I like thing A doesn't mean that you can't like thing B and that neither one of these should exist. And I I feel like that's what the last like eight or nine months have been like just debating my right to have thing B. Yeah, I think um, an example I've been giving recently around this idea uh, when I was speaking with people at PAX East was um, listen to the isometric podcast and be shocked that one, it's uh, a bunch of women and one guy Mm -hmm. and, and that uh, one of them loves uh, first person shooters and loves call of duty. Um, But they they love other games too. So, um, you know, it, we don't, Gamers don't have to be just one issue. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, I love Call of Duty and you love uh, a small independent game, so we must hate each other. Like, you might be shocked that uh, they also love Call of Duty or, you know, there's there's so much more to it. Like, you don't have to. It's not a zero sum game. Right. And it, it occurs to me, too, like, this doesn't happen with literature. Well, well, I guess it kind of does. <laughs> I was thinking, you know. There are so many different kinds of books, you know, different genres, different subgenres. You know, there's virtually an infinite amount of or infinite number of topics, you know, in in different ways that people write and read and interact. And um, I was going to say we we've gone through this with books, I guess, is um, in censorship. But it's not something you hear about as much anymore. You know, there aren't book burnings. Um, at least not in the U.S. really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, maybe this is just just part of the evolution of of what gaming turns into. And it's it's kind of like we're in the book burning phase of it. I don't know. Well, I can give an example from uh, from my actual the, the actual core of my Ph.D. work in religion. So uh, a lot of philo- a lot of the big problems that people talk about in philosophy and in theology were set by old now long dead white guys and then a lot of um feminist criticisms of those problems came along and um schools of theology have actually been doing a really good job of hiring more women and people of color um uh, glbtq individuals and those issues are talked about and critiques from those lenses were brought to those big problems in philosophy and theology that everybody had to talk about. Mm -hmm. And those questions are still talked about, but those criticisms were integrated and, you know, they're still those, those questions that the old dead white guys brought up are still important questions and we still need to think about them, but we do it in different ways now because almost everybody in the field uh, has accepted and integrated uh, the feminist critiques and uh, perspectives from gay theologians and philosophers and uh, the angles that can't be ignored anymore. And I think about the fact that, so this is the part where it's not, it's not just live and let live. Like if, if a medium is maturing, we can criticize it and learn how to do better. Like we don't, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't do blackface in movies anymore, for instance. Um, you know, there's certain things that you can, uh, you can learn to do better. And if first person shooters aren't going to go away, but if they do some things that are like really heinous, maybe they can stop doing them and actually be better games for it while still being first person shooters where you blow everybody away and they're super violent. Right. Uh, like Grand Theft Auto 5 and it's um I don't know treatment of sex workers is is pretty bad like and they could still have a valid Grand Theft Auto game without murdering prostitutes you know it's just it, mm-hmm, it, it mm-hmm. it's not a big deal really really it's not a big deal just to mm-hmm. take that that little bit of that storyline out of there yeah so uh, I totally agree um and that's where I mean, change can be scary, but if you educate yourself about why it's going on and uh, 
you know, you'll be, you'll live, you'll live through it. You'll move forward. You'll still love games, but you can also learn that there's legitimately some things wrong with them and reasons that maybe certain themes shouldn't appear. Uh, so it shouldn't just be live and let live. Cause I, the stuff that Anita Sarkeesian is doing is valid. And as video games mature, if they want to be taken more seriously, uh, you know, they make as much money as movies now. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that stuff should be internalized and integrated to the way people make games. Yeah. And I and I totally agree. I just I feel like live and let live is kind of the baseline. Like, can we just can we just just do that for a little bit? Because it's been so hostile and so volatile to so many people for so long. I think I'm just ready for that that calm, you know, and then all right, let's all simmer down and then maybe we can start having some discussions about this. But um but you're right, it's not it's not a viable long term solution by any stretch of the imagination yeah i mean like i said i think i would be happy with that solution for a while too but then you you like analyze six months. It. Yeah, you, <laughs> you analyze it more and then more work needs to be done but uh yeah. it, would cer- it would certainly be an acceptable place from where we are yeah you're totally right uh so let's talk about the games you play in your free time since we've got like about 10 minutes left i think what do you like besides, you know, kind of these empathy games? What else do you play? I mean, I play. So I, I, I enjoy mostly everything except like I like like I said, I don't play MOBAs. Um, so no Heart of the Storm. No, no, no. Uh, I just I mean, I play. So I, I, I enjoy mostly everything except like I like like I said, I don't play MOBAs. <laughs> Um, what have I been playing lately? I got really into uh, Warframe recently, okay. which is the free-to-play version of Destiny, kind of, sort of. So it's an, an MMO? Yeah, it's an MMO, first-person shooter, ninja game. Um, I, I just, some of the problems that Destiny had with kind of loot and uh, customization just didn't bug me the same way in Warframe and it's free to play and I've been fine kind of crafting my own stuff and not I haven't spent any money on it yet but it's kept me engaged so I might in the future but I don't know that's gotten me hooked in a way yeah MMOs have a way of doing that if they're done correctly (laughs) and um gosh I I play a lot of strategy games Civilization I love I still play XCOM uh Enemy Within the uh, expansion of M- Enemy Unknown uh, from Fire Axis and the Civ people. Uh, maybe because I'm an academic, I like all the you know actual historical people they throw into the Civilization games. But uh, I will, I will, I will give any strategy game like that a try. I love. Um, I don't know. I like resource management games. I know some people really hate them, but I love like Warcraft Three and Starcraft, Starcraft Two. Um, just kind of like gather things and build things and, and then, you know, survive basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a good, like I deal with, I deal with stress daily with like academic deadlines and submission deadlines and stuff. So I guess maybe it's cause I'm, I'm good at dealing with stress already. Uh, but this is a fun type of stress in the game where like you got to balance the resources and spend here, but still have enough stockpiled. Uh, maybe it's a natural transition for me. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. And then I've I've been going to PAX East for the past couple of years, and I I like to dabble with indie games. I just uh, I think one of the cool things about PAX East is going to the indie area and kind of ignoring the AAA stuff because mm-hmm. you actually get you get to meet the people. In many cases, you get to meet the people that made the game because all two of them are there. Mm-hmm. Um. So I kind of I take cards from all of them, and then as the year goes on, I just kind of see which ones are coming out, and um, I give them a look. Uh, you know, they're cheap, so if it's awful, it wasn't a huge waste. So, yeah, I was a little bit disappointed by the indie area of PAX East this year, and um, I said this on last week's episode, but I think it was just because it butted up against GDC, and so you know they had to pick whether to go to PAX East or GDC. Hopefully, that's not going to happen next year. Um, I go i think i read that um it shouldn't be a problem in the next year or two i think uh, next year pax east is in april but i don't know if gdc's still in feb 
or March. I just feel like I saw tweets from people saying it shouldn't be a problem next year, but I, I, I have nothing solid. That would be that would be really interesting. The thing that I loved about PAX was there were more diversity panels than I thought there would be. Um, so it was it was nice to be able to go and sit in a panel and be like, yes, these are my people. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. a bunch of, you know, what I would expect from Penny Arcade. Yeah, I've only been going there for three years now, but this is the first time I can remember there being two Press XY panels, which is a big deal because uh, I think the transgender people are uh, almost always forgotten in the big national debates about LGBTQ rights. Mm-hmm. It's basically LG <laughs> right. is, are basically the only uh, ones represented and uh, transgender people often get left out so i i'm i'm pleased that they even they had two panels and they had a booth in the diversity lounge um i was and i know people uh i think last year they introduced the diversity lounge and some people were critical that it was kind of in a corner room and they were shoving all the lgbtq people in a corner over there but i thought it was a good i thought it was good that they did it and if they're going to get criticized, I'd rather them get criticized for trying something as a solution rather than doing nothing. So I think its existence is a good thing. Could it be better? Probably, but it's better to be criticized for making steps forward than doing nothing. I actually spent a lot of time in the diversity lounge just because it's big and overwhelming. And like I've talked about this on the podcast before, how I, I, I get into conventions and I feel really overwhelmed. And so, you know, my, uh, my friend Sam and my husband and I, you know, we just kind of sat in the diversity lounge most of Sunday actually. And, um, you know, people were DMing me on Twitter and I'd be like, you can come sit next to me in the diversity lounge. So I had friends, you know, coming in and out and, um, I thought it was a great place. They had a bunch of bean bags this year where people could go lay down or sit down and chill out. They had, um, tables um press xy had a table there was um an lgbtq press there um and i got the card from the proprietor so hopefully i'll have him on soon talking about graphic novels um with with these kinds of themes and i was really excited i thought i thought it was a great space it wasn't huge but people were in and out of it all the time and um and i thought it was excellently located this year too because it was not in the back, it was toward the front. So people walked by it as they were going to panels. Oh, that's true. It was closer to the main entrance this year. Yeah, I think last year it was kind of relegated to the back. But yeah. And uh, did you look at the Take This booth at all? They also had a Take This room. Yeah, I I didn't make it to the room because I was in the diversity lounge. But yeah, um, I've talked about Take This on the show too. It's um, I'm I'm really excited that they have, that uh, Susan Arndt and Russ Pitts have um, created this organization for for people with mental illness to raise awareness of mental illness. But they have these rooms at PAX where people can go and just step away and relax. But they also have mental health staffers. So if mm-hmm. someone has a crisis um, while they're at PAX, they can go and actually talk to like a credentialed therapist of some sort, which I think is amazing. It's great. And they also have a website that I would recommend to all your listeners because even beyond mental health, it's uh, the website was designed as a place to share stories and not feel alone. So if, if anything bad has happened to you on the Internet or you're frustrated with the way things are going, um, part of the website's been designed as a place to just share stories and express yourself so some so you feel heard. Or just read other stories and realize that you're not alone and other people are in the same boat. So uh, they're they're doing a really cool thing with their website, too, that is, I think, somewhat relevant to the topic of Gamergate. And if you're if you're feeling threatened online, it might be a safe space for you. Yeah. um, And for people who like podcasts, um, Ken Gagne, who I've talked about before on this on this episode and who I talk about, like every episode has the Polygamer podcast. And he actually had Susan and Russ on um, to talk about it, too. So there's another way you can get more information about what they're doing. And and, um, I think it's I'm I'd like to have them on the show eventually, too. But Ken did a great job talking to them. So. Yeah, I agree. What they're doing is good. 
So we're right about an hour, Ben. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Um, I had one thing. It's kind of a okay. tangent. It's a little bit of a tangent. Or maybe I never, not so. I never go off on tangents at all, ever. <laughs> maybe, maybe not a tangent, but it's like a, it's a bit of a soapbox moment okay. for, uh, for what we've been talking about. Pull it up. Um, so Gamergate presents itself as um, this debate. So... Uh, like they they think they have a point about gaming ethics journalism something or like that but mm. uh, I compare it to so I grew up in super conservative West Texas and something the most conservative students like to say to some of the more liberal professors was the tolerance movement is intolerant mm. which which they meant as uh, you liberal people are intolerant because you won't accept my intolerance like, in, my intolerant views right and that's not how tolerance works if your position is that there should be no other positions you don't actually have a position that's capable of being entered into public debate so uh it's not that you're being excluded you you've by definition chosen a position that cannot be included because it excludes all other positions and can only exist alone by itself so it's not that the tolerance movement is intolerant it's that you've chosen something that's incapable of being put in dialogue with everything else and I think of that when I hear some gamer gators going, well, you need to give us our point of view and you need to let us get our point across. No, if your point is that no women should make games and none of their points can be listened to, you don't actually have a point that's capable of being discussed. You're just ranting and raving about not everybody in the world agreeing with you. And it's so frustrating. And I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I like it. We'll have that printed on a T-shirt. <laughs> yes, in, very, in type 5 right, print. Right, <laughs> right. No, I, I think that's an excellent, you know, how you can't debate with somebody who has no logic behind their point of view. You know, like, they have feelings, and I'm sorry, feelings aren't logical. Mm-hmm. It goes, like... We were kind of saying uh, live and let live would be okay if if they actually if there was a debate and they said, all right, wh like, what do you actually instead of saying you can't do anything? They went to a uh, woman who's making games and said, why do you do what you do? Why is your perspective different? And why do you think there should be more of you in the industry? Um, and then she said, why are you threatened? Or like, what games do you like? And then there was some understanding and they said, OK, I'm not going to play these type of games, but I like learned a perspective now mm -hmm. like that would that would be something and then mm -hmm. you can still go off and play your other games but just saying none of this can happen isn't actually a debate that's cap or a position that's capable of being entered into debate yep amen okay okay the soapbox done i loved it thank you so ben how can people find you online um well, not in many places right now. So, like I said, PAX East... PhD student. <laughs> yes, uh, PAX, yeah. PAX East was my first foray into the video game industry, if you even want to call it that. Um, so, uh, I'm going to give a plug to my uh, game industry uh, spirit guide, Anna McGill, who's been on your podcast a number of times. Three! And uh, she's fantastic. She and is. I uh, so I I got a good re I got a good reaction to the panel and I think I have a perspective that I hope is helpful to people. So I am going to be pursuing it further and seeing how I can give information that it is of benefit. Uh, but in the meantime, um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Ben Chica C H I C K A. Um, if you go to the panel. Uh, and you want to send me a more long-form question, I'm happy to give out my email, which is just benjamin.chica at cgu.edu. And uh, we also, my colleague and I made a Facebook page about the panel. It's just a community page. If you go to Facebook and search for The Science of Online Bullying, A Lesson in Diversity, um, there's a link to the panel there, and it's also a convenient place to discuss it uh, in more long-form than Twitter, if people are interested in doing that. 
And yeah, I might have things to announce in the future. I'm thinking about some sort of web resource that might present this people, uh, present this information to people uh, in a digestible format, like it's meant for a non-academic audience, but I have nothing to announce yet. So uh, Twitter is the best way so that if something does happen, I can let you know about it there. Okay. Excellent. And um, if I can make a request to everybody listening, if you are interested um, in what I've been talking about, send me an email or message me on Twitter and say what might be helpful to you. Um, less, I, I, I take suggestions for topics like what more science, other science or philosophy that you might be interested in, but how, what ways of presenting it would be helpful to you. And that would be interesting to me as I think about what I might be creating in the future, what sort of website to create and what resources might best fit uh, the audience. So that would be helpful to me. That's fabulous. I'm excited. Um, all right. Well, you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form just like Ben did. If you have a few minutes, it would be wonderful if you'd leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for less than or equal. Less than or equal.